brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com. Wow, I'm definitely too loud there. All right. Softrep.com. <laughs> that's how you know, like, when we're peaking, when I see that. Softrep.com. That's, that's always the loudest that the show goes. On time, on target. Should I start with these things? <laughs> Softrep.com. On time, on target. Uh, I'm Ian Scotto. I'm here with Jack Murphy, as usual. I think people have been enjoying the shows for the past like, couple of months. have been you and I pretty consistently. Last couple shows, been Bala. Yeah, absolutely, man. Getting all the good guests on. We got some uh, more cool people coming on. You know, we have Amber Smith today, and then we have some other great guests lined up, too, in the next, you know, month. Yeah, I'm psyched. Finally, we'll have some in-studio people. It's been a while. Yeah. But, um, you know, we we get on who we can, and if people are coming through New York, then we love to make things happen. Uh, Jack and I... Happen to be wearing the same shirt today, although you're wearing... I got the hoodie. Yeah, you're wearing the soft rep hoodie. I am wearing the t-shirt. I don't, I don't know if this is available right now at softrep.com. I think they're older. Yeah, these are older. I think these are like vintage now. Yeah, you but know? you can order shirts at softrep.com. Uh, Jack and I did not plan this. I didn't call him and say, what are you wearing today, So we can be, look, you guys are twins. Yeah, yeah it was kind of weird. But uh, anyway... Breaking news today to get into is that Raul Castro stepped down as president of Cuba. I mean, if you want to call him the president, I guess you'd say dictator of Cuba. And uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel has been named as the new president, who both of us don't know very much about, but he's definitely another left-wing guy. Well, yeah, I think that's kind of part and parcel of being part of the Cuban government, uh, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, definitely um, another <laughs> communist in yeah. power. I, I don't, I'm afraid I don't know anything about him. I've been following Cuban politics. Uh, no, I don't. I, I probably, don't I probably should know more about it, um, frankly, considering how they're still on our back doorstep. Um, I wonder if this is because when, when Fidel Castro stepped down, it was for health reasons. I wonder if this is a similar type of thing. Yeah, or was it some kind of like brokered... Uh, negotiated transition of power, you know, happening behind closed doors in smoke-filled rooms. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to look. I'm wondering how old Raul Castro is. Um, Probably pretty pretty up there. That's what point. I'm wondering. Um, so Raul Castro, yeah, 86 years old. So, so I would not be surprised if it's a health issues type thing similar to his father. Yeah, yeah. These dynasties, they just, like, stay stay there forever, you know? And does it really matter when you handpick the next guy? He's probably going to just right, know, right. do what you want until you die. Well, I mean, it's funny. Isn't that kind of what, like, the Cuban Revolution was about, getting these, like, uh, kleptocrats, these aristocracies out of power? They, they just replaced one with another, really. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's going to continue to be. Um, you were talking earlier, uh, just among writers at Safra, about a very unfortunate and terrible um, piece of news. 7th SF Group Airborne Soldier charged with sexual battery and child abuse. 
33-year-old uh, Thomas Mrozik. Uh, it's a Polish last name. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But, yeah, th- and these are very young children. Yeah, uh, it's, frankly, it's a fucked up situation um, between him. And then on Sunday, uh, this other, this guy who's a special forces soldier uh, at 7th Group also, Derek McKinney, he was arrested on charges of uh, murdering his wife. Uh, 911 call was made to the house, um, apparently by the gunman, by by. Derek McKinney, who identified himself as the gunman, uh, as that's what the police report, at least. Uh, the police show up at the house. They find uh, they find the wife dead in the bedroom with a pistol next to her head, uh, blood all over the place, of course. And uh, and they arrest the husband. Apparently, he made incriminating statements both before and after he was read his Miranda rights. So they took him in. They they brought took him into custody. Um, and there's going to be a trial date set for that. I don't think he's pled to the charges yet. Um, so first he'll have to plead, and then you know they'll if if he pleads not guilty, they'll initiate a trial. Uh, and then yesterday, this guy Thomas Morozik, uh, who was not a Green Beret, he was a support personnel uh, dude assigned to Seventh uh, Special Forces Group. I read the arrest record on him. CID got him yesterday, put him into custody. And, uh, dude, this guy is an animal. I'm just going to call it like it is. I mean, I read the arrest report. Uh, he, he raped these two girls, a seven year old and an 11 year old that were staying with him for two weeks. And I saw his response was something to the effect of, um, it was bullshit. It's, it was, it was a response of somebody who's fucking guilty. That's yeah, what it was. But he, he didn't deny it. He almost, he said something to the effect of like, this sounds very in depth for them to, he's uh, like, I'm not, I'm not saying they're lying, yeah. but, I, but I don't recall that exactly. incident. Yeah. And he says, Oh, well, I'll apologize to her if she needs to hear that. Like he, he's fucking one of these psychopath pedophiles. Um, and you know, the, the arrest record, if you go and read it, it's, it's graphic. You know, he vaginally and anally raped both of these girls over a two week period. Um, you know, holding his hand over their mouth so they couldn't scream, hit one of them in the head because she was screaming. No, and this guy is a psychopath and he belongs in prison for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, and in some cases, I mean, it's worse than killing someone because the psychological damage that you do to people—they're gonna those two life. girls are gonna live with this for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for that, Thomas. Yeah. A- any uh, contact with who that is? With with who? Any? Do you know any any contacts who know Thomas? that know this guy? Yeah. No, I don't. I I just saw it in the news. Uh, someone sent it to me today, and then I went and I read the arrest record. So I don't have any you know special inside knowledge or anything about it. Um, I just read, you know, the statements that were made by the two girls, her mother and him. And I was also just record. thinking, though, 33 year old guy was in SF or around your age. So I would just would think maybe you knew people would contact. With I, I mean, I probably do. I mean, it's yeah. a small circle of people. So I probably know somebody who knows somebody. I, I just I haven't you know, been running around making phone calls. Yeah, and, I, and not like you have any interest in speaking with this guy. Probably. I mean, what more is there to say? Yeah, he's a piece of shit. Fuck this guy. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we have Amber Smith coming on. I do want to get to some emails, which we had a couple of great ones here. Um, as usual, sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I've also been reading all of the positive reviews on Apple Podcasts, which we really appreciate. Um, I feel like every review I read now has a reference to the Big Bang and Young Yang. You had to get it in there. You it's so funny. It, you had it, to get it in there. It even. gets mentioned like every review. It's 
don't stop talking about this documentary. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, all right, here are a couple emails. Uh, this is from Eric. Oh, this is a good one, um, and I wonder if you'll have any knowledge of this. Hey, fellas, just a quick question for Jack, OPSEC dependent. I've heard him telling a story a few times about his ODA crashing a wedding in Iraq. <laughs> I'm a CH-47 Chinook flight engineer that was in the country around the same time, and I remember sing-loading an ODA HMM uh, WV. Am I saying that right? Let me see that. A Humvee? Yeah, just as HMMW. Yeah, a Humvee. Uh, that had a bride and groom painted on the hood with a red circle and slash <laughs> over it. Just wondering if that was Jack's ODA, and if so, I hope we helped you out. Keep up the great work. I look forward to your that every is, your show every week. That is fucking hilarious. That had to be us. Um, I uh, I don't recall anything painted on the hood. I remember on the uh, plate on the on the fifty cal turret. Um, so we, you'd hear guys call it the chicken plate. And it's literally just a, like a, a metal plate of armor that goes in front of the turret gunner, and there's a little slit where the 50 cal barrel comes through. And on that plate, on the front of it, on two of our Humvees, the guys had um, spray painted with like stencils and it, like make it look all professional. Uh, a man and a woman holding hands. You know, like those. Yeah, uh, you know like those the wedding cake toppers. Like you know, no, you know those like silhouettes on the bathroom. Sure, that look like a man yeah, and yeah, a woman. Yeah. It was sort of like that, like a man and a woman holding hands. And then there's the big like <laughs> Ghostbusters no sign, like with a circle, red circle with a slash going through it, over it, uh, to make it, it look like you know we it, we were. My team sergeant came out and saw it, and he was like, you know, this makes it look like we're against heterosexual marriage. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. <laughs> and, and then I think they stenciled also, they wrote on there, like, the wedding crashers or something like so that. So this has to be you. It has to be us. I mean, it has to be the same thing. Um, I don't recall um, transporting the vehicle, but that could, in, a, in, a, in a CH-47 helicopter, I don't remember that. Uh, that could have happened after we left, though. Um, so yeah, I mean, I imagine it had to be us though. That's pretty funny. For those who don't know what Jack's referring to, that's going to be a story. It's a story you did tell, but you know, now it's going to be in your upcoming book, Murphy's Law. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be in, uh, in my book when it comes out in October. And I know I've talked about it on the podcast a few times when my ODA, our first operation, and actually we stood up that team. So historically it was our first combat operation. It was crashing a wedding in Missoula. Yeah. And uh, the the groom was a really bad guy uh, and his dad, for that matter. They were both really bad dudes. Uh, They're bad hombres. And you recently talked about what they did to him as a detainee. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a different subject. But yeah, the father, um, he got disappeared and the, uh, the son... Um, he was locked up in prison, handcuffed to a cell, standing up for I don't know how long. Months. But I, but I, I mean, yeah. Every time we came back, he was still wearing his wedding suit, Holy still handcuffed shit. to the cell like that. So that's insane, man. All right, uh, another email here. Uh, this is from Cade. Hey guys, thank you for your show. My friends and I really enjoy listening to you and reading your articles. Anyhow, I study world affairs, and I would like an opinion from an expert from the experts about what is really happening in Turkey. Is Turkey cutting ties with the U.S. and siding with Russia, or are they just making their own path in their own direction? Why are they making anti-European gestures? What do you have to gain? What do they have to gain? And most of all, what are they doing in Syria? Thank you. I look forward to your feedback. So this is a, an incredibly 
complicated issue. Um, and especially, you know, you look at where Turkey is on a map, um, and it has to be complicated. Because, you know, they call it like the gateway to Asia and all this kind of stuff. It's like the gateway between the West and the East. Um, the, the easiest, simplest way I can put it is that Turkey now has a neo-Ottoman uh, policy that they want to become the Ottoman Empire again. And that's how Erdogan and his cronies see themselves. And that's how they see Turkey's historical place in the world. They feel that that's where they belong. And you can see that and how they're going into uh, Syria, how they've put Turkish troops in Iraq, that they're regarding their neighbors as part of their empire, as part of their near abroad. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really messed up situation and what are, what are we going to do about it? Um, this causes all kinds of, uh, problems for us because Turkey is at least notionally an ally. Um, and we've talked about before Turkey and in regards to the kind of stuff we cover, how it creates these really awkward situations where, you know, for instance, we had U S special forces soldiers in Turkey, um, running logistics and support for uh, Syrian rebel groups in northern Syria. So we're training these um, these groups. Meanwhile, the Turkish special forces are training ISIS guys and providing logistics support to ISIS. And so it, it, there's this awkward situation where American Green Berets and Turkish special forces are in the same joint operations center, and the Turks are pretending they don't know that our guys are working with the Kurdish YPG because they hate that the Turks hate the Kurds. Meanwhile, the American Green Berets are pretending like they don't know that these Turkish guys are training ISIS. It's just one of these really weird, awkward situations that we end up in. Um, the Kurds who are, we are allied with in Syria, meanwhile, they look at this and they see everything Turkey does as an extension of American foreign policy because they're like, oh, you're allied with Turkey. You must have greenlit that. The Turks went and invaded Afrin in, in northern Syria. Well, America must have given them the green light. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. That's the perception uh, on the ground. They see something happen, and they're like, well, America is the biggest, strongest country. They, they must have wanted that to happen. That's why it happened. And, I mean, anybody who really understands the United States realizes that you know, we blunder through things, and we're not quite as uh, uh, godlike as people around the world sometimes think. Um, so I don't believe we greenlit any of that, but that's how it's perceived. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, the, that's the short answer to understanding Turkey is they, they have neo-Ottoman ambitions, and they're going to continue pressing on with that. Meanwhile, we're trying to maintain them as an ally because we have uh, in Serlik Air Base there. Uh, it's an important air base that we would need if we ever went to war with Iran or other countries in the region. Um, we need air bases like that for mid-air refueling, bombers, all that good stuff. Um, so it's a balancing act, and I don't think we figured out how to balance it. That country is going to—it's becoming increasingly volatile. Um, they've been flirting with Islamic extremists for a long time, and personally, I'm just kind of kicked back, wondering when that chicken's going to come home to roost, uh, and they'll start destabilizing Turkey in turn. And, uh, and what else about Turkey? I mean, the, the Turkish press has called my wife a PKK slut. It was <laughs> really? All, oh, yeah. It's all over the news. She, I, she, I don't think she can ever go back to, uh, back to Turkey. She filmed a, a documentary yeah. years ago about um, uh, Gezi Park. 
And, um, but since then, you know, her and I, we've both gone and we've spent time hanging out with the Kurds. We've spent time with the Peshmerga. We've spent time with the YPG, YPJ. And we also went to Condal and we hung out with the PKK and, you know, talked to them. And so when Benny put out her documentary about the Kurdish militias in Syria, the Turkish, they did like, there was a big event. It was in a Venice film festival and the Turkish media went apeshit. And when I say Turkish media, it's state, it's all state run media yeah. at the end of the day. That's what it all is. Um, I, I mean, I know somebody who works in the Turkish media and oh, like, wow. yeah, if, when I ask them a question like, Hey, what's going on in, in, uh, with this bombing or that? And the answer I always get is, well, the department of the interior says, I'm like, yeah, okay, bro, but what's really happening? Well, Department of Interior made the statement. Okay, got it. But, yeah, it's it's just uh, state-run media. So, yeah, all these newspapers came out, and they, they were, like, furious with uh, with my wife um, just going they, just going apeshit over it. You know what I was going to say about Turkey, and this is, you know, not entirely related, but do you remember a few years back, and I was just looking to double-check, it was the 100-year anniversary of the Armenian Genocide, and I remember walking into work, and uh, which is right around Times Square where I was, and there were all these billboards from Turkey, some group in Turkey, denying the Armenian genocide. <laughs> Do you remember that? And it was, it was, I was surprised to see them all over Times Square, these big billboards saying, you know, like, we can't make peace until the truth is out, basically. And, and the, you'd Tur- go to this website the Turks and was, are like, it never happened. Yeah, and it was all about how it never happened. And, and here's an interesting thing about that is uh, I went to the Kurdish New Year, uh, the New Year celebration they have here in the in the New York, New Jersey area, um, and where where was that held? In the Armenian Cultural Center. Um, so there's a there's a close linkage between the Armenians and the Kurds, and, and there were Kurds who participated in the Armenian genocide. To be completely candid, and the Kurds are pretty open about that. They acknowledge that that happened. Well, that's um, a that's a big first step, you right? Know, to be right. able to say that it's it's why you know you don't see animosity between Jews and Germans, you know. Yeah, uh, they're trying to make amends for it, you yeah. know. Um, you know, what, once your country is able to say like we're ashamed that this happened, th- that we take blame for this, but the Turks are still in denial about it. They won't. Yeah, I mean, if you're putting that, up billboards, yeah. it's it's very hard to make relations, especially when the, you know the U.S. is populated by a lot of Armenians. Actually, arguably the most famous country, the most famous family in America are the Kardashians, <laughs> honestly. And, um, you, you know, we, we try to always every year acknowledge what went on and the Armenian genocide. And so it is strange to see a country that is supposedly an ally of ours, um, you know, out there denying it. And I was surprised to see on prominent New York skyscrapers a basically a, these giant billboards saying that this did not happen or it didn't go down the way that we believe it did. A lot of the Turks, I mean, they're just fueled by this uh, sense of nationalism that's just so over the top. <laughs> it gets kind of silly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, unless you have anything else, I guess we'll get over to Amber Smith, who I'm excited to have on. We had her on Power of Thought recently. Um, and we had her on Soft Rep Radio a while back, um, but this will be nice to have her on for the first time in a very long time. So joining us is Amber Smith, Army helicopter pilot and former deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Outreach and Public Affairs. Um, Amber was just on the Power of Thought with Brandon Webb recently, and we had you on Soft Rep Radio a while back, and I remember... Be, because of like me recording from my house and the studio set up, the audio was like not the best. So this will be a lot better, and we're excited to have you back on. I am excited to be back on. Very cool. 
Um, I figured the first thing that we'd get to, and I saw you tweeting about it, so it's, it really just makes sense that we have a helicopter pilot on with this news. Um, the or you know the big issue of Navy Lieutenant Tammy Joe Schultz, who landed the crippled Southwest Airlines plane. Um, one of the first female pilots in the U.S. Navy, one passenger was killed, seven injured. But from what I've seen, and you could probably speak more to this, the damage would have been far worse had she have not been thinking so quickly. Yeah, I think that she is a complete badass. She handled the situation so well. That's an excellent example of what it looks like uh, to perform under pressure, under extreme pressure. Um, as we even heard from some of the audio, as she was up in the cockpit, so she didn't have all of the complete information from what was going on mm -hmm. back in the cabin with what had happened to the woman who was partially sucked out of the window. And she was still able to perform, um, you know, at that top notch effort, making very hard, uh, split second decisions that affected an entire plane full of people. What's that like? I mean, I'm just interested in your perspective as a, as a former pilot, you know, when you're up in the air and something just goes mechanically wrong with the machine you're flying, I mean, how, how do you stay cool under pressure and, and try to resolve those kinds of issues? Well, you do. The military provides anybody in aviation, whether it's on the maintenance side or for pilots, uh, support, you get the best training in the world. Uh, and when you do it for a long time, that mm -hmm. Ma that absolutely matters w with your performance and your ability to make those very hard and challenging decisions, especially when things start to go wrong. Uh, but the number one thing they teach you when it comes to anything with aviation, um, when there's any sort of a problem or emergency, something going on, the first thing you do is you fly the aircraft. Uh, you don't get distracted about what's going on behind you. Uh, there's been so many instances, especially I flew a helicopter that had guns. We had a 50 cal machine gun. We had a rocket pod that carried high explosive rockets. We could carry hellfire missiles. Um, and we have something called target fixation where you may be pulling the trigger and you mm -hmm. get so focused on, you know, shooting your weapon systems and where your rounds are going that, you know, pilots have flown straight in the ground before because while they're engaging a target because they stop flying the aircraft and, and they, they get so they stay they target fixation. They stay like so, nose down heading into the dirt. Exactly. So in any emergency situation, that's what they teach you to do. Um, fly the aircraft, fly the aircraft, fly the aircraft. Um, and you know, you have a, a co-pilot, um, that helps you assess the situation, um, during an emergency. So you guys can figure out what's going on and then make the best decision based on the information you have. All of that usually happens in a couple of seconds. Um, so it's not like any sort of long-term decision-making process, uh, but the best training in the world and the experience that you have um, is what kicks in and, and helps you in those situations. As curious, and we, I brought this up with, uh, with Pat McNamara, who is, you know, a, uh, well, he's a former special operations soldier, but now he teaches marksmanship. And we were talking a little bit about how, you know, you go into this sort of like Zen-like state of calmness because of the amount of focus you have to put into marksmanship and the focus on every shot. And I was just wondering if that's something that you also experience as a pilot, especially when you're under high stress in those sorts of combat scenarios or emergency situations. That the, the, Does the intense focus you have on flying that aircraft kind of put you into like a calming state? 
Absolutely. You're when you're in the moment, when you're out on a mission, um, even when you're being shot at, uh, you are doing what you need to do to stay alive, to complete your mission, um, what, what you're there to do. And I would say that you don't necessarily feel it, um, until after you're out of the situation. So while you're involved in a <laughs> yeah. troops in contact, while you're, you have contact with the enemy, um, you're in a, an emergency situation, you're dealing with that. So you don't have time to, um, basically, you know, have any sort of emotion. You are very focused on the here and now and present and doing what you can, um, to get out of it alive and, um, the people you're supporting. So afterwards though, when you get back to the base, um, when you get out of the situation and you have a little bit of time to reflect on what happened, then you might feel it a little bit, um, or a lot, but it just (laughs) depends. That's an interesting phenomena, isn't it? Like I've heard, I've heard other guys tell me that too, about, you know, like I wasn't scared until after the mission and we got back. And then it fully dawned on me that, you know, I almost died <laughs> and then I got scared. Absolutely. Or even after deployments, the, that's right, like a long-term right. delay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, you know, same night when you get back from a mission, when you get back from a deployment and you get to do a little bit of reflection and you're like, how on earth am I alive right now? And I was seeing in, uh, in your book too, that you had uh, actually flown in some of the same areas that I was in or roughly around the same time frame. I mean, you were fa- flying a, uh, Kiowa, you talk about flying around, uh, Telafar at one point. So, uh, yeah, the Telafar mission, um, we were, I believe, are you talking about, um, when we got into bad weather, that chapter? Yeah. Yeah. I do believe. Yeah, so Talifar was, I was based out of uh, Kirkuk yes. at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, we were on a night mission. We, I think we were supposed to pick up a convoy super early in the morning, um, and we ended up hitting some, we normally didn't fly over there. It was a little too uh, far for us, but uh, anyway, that that was the specific mission for what we were doing that day, and... So we were flying in an area that we weren't necessarily used to flying in and the weather just came down very, very quickly. And I'd been in weather situations before, um, where things got a little dicey. Um, but we were under night vision goggles and you can always see a little bit better in poor weather conditions under goggles. So you usually push it a little bit farther Um, and so it was quite the learning experience for me. We definitely punched into the clouds, uh, luckily came right back out, uh, made the decision to turn around and it was the, um, the sun was just coming up when we had turned around and decided to fly out of, uh, the, the fog. And, um, it was like a straight wall, like from the ground to as high as you could see, it was like a um, a white wall and it was very eerie. Um, but it was quite the learning experience for me when it comes to pushing weather, um, and making some decisions that go along with it. Well, the sandstorms in that area are pretty bad too. Uh, you can see them coming like a huge, like you, exactly like you described. I mean, from, from the ground up as, as high as you can see pretty much. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, very similar. The sandstorms were disgusting, not good for flying helicopters in no. either in terms of getting debris in the engine and um, sort of affecting your ability to fly. And then there's always a risk of engine failures because of things that fly. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine flying a helicopter through that. Yeah, luckily for those... Um, it, it's basically similar to flying in the clouds. You know, the visibility just continues to get lower and lower and lower. And you're like, all right, there's no longer operable flying conditions anymore. And so you, you turn back hopefully in time, but weather sandstorms um, certainly have been a significant problem for helicopters, especially uh, in Iraq, not so much yeah. in Afghanistan, but and for people who don't understand, like when you're inside one of those sandstorms, it looks like you're on the surface of Mars. It, li- it literally <laughs> blots out the sun. I was going to ask you about, um, you know, beyond your book, you were earlier, just earlier this year, the deputy assistant to the secretary of defense for outreach and public affairs. And people speak so highly of General Mattis. I'm wondering if you have any Mattis stories or what is the guy really like? Well, I think that, um, first of all, it was such an incredible honor to get to work for one of the greatest um, generals. And I truly think he's one of the greatest leaders of our time. Um, So to get to work for him was just um, an absolute honor. And I I was privileged to do the job. And um, I got to work a lot on the civilian-military divide and how that affects um, future operations of our military and national security. And that's something that Um, he was passionate about and that he had worked um, on previously with a think tank that he was associated with before joining the administration. Um, And he was just, uh, he's very charismatic in person um, and he loves to engage and talk with people. Um, I ran something for him called um, the Joint Civilian Orientation Conference And it's where we take about 40 um, civilian and thought leaders from across the country who don't have any association with the military or, you know, are involved in national security. And we bring them into the Pentagon and we sort of immerse them in military life and they get to learn all about the different branches and meet, you know, junior soldiers and platoon leaders. Um, So basically like captain and under um, but we bring him to Pentagon Day, and Secretary Mattis comes down, and, and he speaks with them. And I remember we had scheduled, I think, 30 minutes for, for him to talk, and obviously he has an extremely tight schedule. And he came down and spoke, and it was basically just a big Q&A is what it was. And 30 minutes went by, and we're like, okay, sir, it's you know you got to <laughs> move on to your next thing. And he's like... He's like, no, this is fun. I'm staying here and ended up staying for an hour and a half and <laughs> just like, just answered so um, honestly all of their questions. And um, it was it was just really neat to see him engage with an audience that was so interested in him and the military. Um, so it was pretty neat. So lucky hey, I got to work for him. It's great to have somebody as Secretary of Defense who, um, you know, I, I've, I've never met him, of course, but he seems like, you know, he's a genuine uh, person and also a genuine intellectual who really cares about, you know, the future of our country. Um, and I, I always appreciated that about General Mattis. Absolutely. And he's so frank and not scripted. And I think that the press and anybody that works with him really appreciates 
that about him that, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, and talk about love of country. I just think that he is an incredible American that has, you know, essentially, um, made his life about service to this country in one way or another. And, um, I'm grateful to have gotten to serve underneath him. Well, one thing you had mentioned that I just want to follow up on, because I think this is an important topic. You said you were doing outreach uh, in regards to the civil military divide. And I, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Um, first of all, what that is for some of our listeners who might be wondering, well, what, what do you mean when you say a term like that? Um, and, and kind of your take on, on that civil military divide and, and what we can do to um, I'll work on that to improve relations. So, Less than 1% of our population is currently serving in the military. So over 99% of Americans are not serving their country. Um, And we've just seen at uh, the Department of Defense when I was working there a significant decline in people who had a direct connection to either a veteran or someone who was serving or a family member who had served. in the mid nineties, I believe it was about 40% of young adults had a parent who had served. And now, you know, 20 years later, it has gone down to 15%. So that's a significant drop in 20 years in terms of, um, people having that direct connection to someone who is educated about the military and someone who has served, um, or who has had a family who has served is, um, more aware of the sacrifices that are made. They're educated on the issues that military members and veterans face. Um, and so when you don't have that direct connection, people are getting their information from movies, from yes. video games. commercials, from video games. And they think that that is fact and reality. And unfortunately, in most circumstances, it is not. Um, so we just felt there was a void of facts and information. Um, and we wanted to make sure that the American people were getting the information that they needed to know about who is serving in the military, what they do and why they choose to serve. So I launched, um, the department of defense's largest public affairs outreach initiative called This Is Your Military. And it was a primarily digital initiative with also an emphasis on senior leaders going out and speaking across the country. Um, but mostly talking to that younger generation that where the biggest disconnect exists and speaking to them, um, articulating our message in a way that they read it. So on platforms that they use. Snapchat, YouTube, different vlogs. Um, we started a video series on YouTube um, called A Day With, where it features a different service member, but it's a look beyond the uniform. It is a, who is serving. They have hobbies, they have families, they have goals and dreams. So what does their life look, um, to not hu- only to humanize with them, them serving yeah. in the military, but bigger than that? Well, I think... The, on the on the flip side of this uh, civil military divide is the issue of how our military relates to our civilian leadership. Um, you know, we're lucky right now that you know Jim Mattis is a uh, former Marine, retired Marine, um, also the director of the CIA. Gina Hasprin is a uh, career spy, so we're lo- kind of lucky to have these people. But oftentimes, they're political appointees who didn't serve in the military. 
and DOD as a whole has to relate and convey information and, and kind of have that back and forth and ultimately fall under the command and control of civilian leadership. Um, have you found that that's an issue with the civil military divide also on, on how that relationship works out? I maybe could see it as a contributing factor. I don't see it as a major component. When you look at uh, military members connecting with sort of the political mm-hmm. civilian leadership within the Department of Defense, um, on a policy level, uh, you know, the military is already in tune to what's going on. So I think there may be some disagreement in terms of actual actual people serving in uniform in the military, um, not maybe agreeing with some decisions that are made at the civilian level at a higher level of, of leadership, because a lot of people at the Department of Defense who are in those political positions or even um, civil um, civil servants um, haven't served. So I think that there may be a little bit of a disconnect in okay, some of the policies that you're making, how does that actually affect me, the warfighter on the ground with this equipment? Um, that is definitely a problem. Hey, uh, it's been a while since we had you on, and I'm sure a lot of people who are listeners now didn't get to hear your first appearance, but I remember you had a really awesome story about working with President Bush, if you, if you want to get into that. <laughs> so uh, it was... In December of 2008, I was just ending um, my year-long deployment in Afghanistan. It was my second year-long deployment. Uh, And I was on the night shift, and I had a day off. And you sort of covet your days off while you're in a uh, combat zone, um, and you look forward to them. So uh, anyway, somebody knocked on my door and was like, Amber, we need you to fly tomorrow night. And I was like, no, tomorrow night's my, like, I thought there was a mistake. I was like, oh no, I have the day off tomorrow. Um, I'm sure somebody else can do it. And they're like, no, we need you to fly tomorrow night. We can't tell you what's going on, but you have to fly tomorrow night. And so of course that sparked my interest. And, uh, so the next day I went in with the other crew members who had been selected to fly this mission And, um, we walked into our crew briefing room and shut the door and they were like, okay, um, nobody knows this, but air force one is coming in to land. Um, and we are flying aerial security for air force one as on their, their approach into Bagram. So we got to fly aerial security for air force one as they came in on approach and landed at Bagram air base. President Bush was, um, it was the same trip that he had gone to Iraq and gotten the shoe. The journalist had thrown the shoe at him while he was up on oh, stage. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so he went from Iraq and then he had a follow-on tr- um, flight into Afghanistan. Um, once they landed at Bagram Airfield, um, it was it was a pretty. The, all of the airspace was closed. The only people that were in the air was Air Force One, and then our two Kai was. Um that were armed and it was just, um, it was, it was quite the honor to get to fly security for the president. And then he jumped on a Blackhawk 
um, as soon as we had landed at the airbase and he flew down to um, President Karzai at the time to his palace for a meeting. So it was quite the surprise going from me not wanting to fly because it was my day <laughs> off to getting to um, get to fly for the president. Was, so this, was, pretty, was this one of the trips he made? That was a and a good way to end the deployment. Was this one of the trips he made during the holidays? I remember he like popped up a couple times like serving Thanksgiving dinner or something like that or uh, Christmas maybe it was. So I have the exact date in my book. I can't remember when it was off the top of my head, but I think it was around mid-December, uh, 2008. And I mean, yeah, he definitely met with troops while he was in country. Does that make sense then? Yeah. Um, so last episode with Curtis Alvarez, we were saying that we were going to have you on and, and we got into a whole discussion about race relations and special operations, oh boy. but it was interesting because <laughs> Curtis being a black dude who's an army ranger very few minorities who are com- who are uh, special operations veterans, especially Army Rangers, it seems like. And then the discussion got into females in special operations. And I was saying, like, we've talked about this subject at length on the podcast and could definitely be accused of mansplaining this because it's all a bunch <laughs> of dudes here usually. So I was like, we should get into this with Amber on. And, and I was actually just wondering your opinion about the, the possible future of women in the special operations community. So when it comes to women serving in special operations or ground forces, the infantry, et cetera, um, my stance is there should be a mission standard, not a gender standard. I do think women should be allowed to try out for these positions um, and be held to the exact same standard that the men standing next to them are held to. I don't believe in any sort of special treatment or quotas um, at all. I think that that actually hurts women who are trying to sort of uh, move up in the ranks. Um, I don't think it does them any help or gives them any, you know, bonuses. It it, it cheats the woman out of their opportunity, right? Say again. It, it, I feel like doing that kind of cheats women out of their opportunity to earn, you know, a green beret or, or whatever the case is, a seal trident, wh- whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And it hurts their credibility. Yeah. I, you know, people will look at them um, if if they were given any sort of special treatment, they will always be viewed that they that way once they get to the unit. Um, and it will hurt them if they, you know, did the exact same physical test, the exact same mental tests um and they you know had to score the exact same as the men that they're competing against for these positions then they'll be that much more respected for it when they get to um the unit if they do make it um and and i think that's crucial for success if if women are going to serve in special operations um that's the standard that everybody needs to be be held to it doesn't need to be broken down do you, do you think women would be able to make it through any special operations training if they're held to the same standard? Uh, I think that women, uh, of course, I think that it will be very few um, because I think that they have to work that much harder to be able to meet that standard, especially physically. Um, women, men and women are different physically. That's a fact. Um, that's not an opinion. So I think women can meet some of those standards. I don't think they would likely stay in that position for as long as men will be able to because they are constantly having to work to maintain that level of expertise and whatever it may be or that physical condition. Um, But I do think some women will be able to achieve those results. 
I remember um, having a conversation actually with Mark Boyat, who uh, he commanded Third Special Forces Group. I remember asking him this question. He told me, he's like, we have got to find a way to get women on ODAs. However, however it is, maybe, maybe not as Green Berets in a different um, role or as Green Berets, like, like you just said, Amber, put them through the same course the guys go through and get them in there. But he was, uh, and he's an old school guy, old school uh, Green Beret, believes strongly in the unconventional warfare mission. He's like, we got to get women on there because of what they can bring to the table for the force. Mm-hmm. I would say, I mean, when I got to my unit, believe it or not, 2000 four doesn't seem that long ago, but, um, in terms of women being, especially in the attack community in army aviation, uh, women were still fairly rare. Um, I mean, for me, it was usually the older generation of men that Mm -hmm. were not necessarily as open to women being there. But I felt like with anything, it was like the younger generation or my peers, like the same level rank as I was. It just wasn't a big deal because they were used to it. They were right. used to women going through flight school with them. And um, and so it wasn't necessarily a problem. And then from there, I remember the numbers of women sort of rapidly grew. By the time I ended up leaving um, in 2010, there were there were a lot more women that were there than than when I left. Um, but I just think it's, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with maturity and professionalism, um, and people being able to look past it. Like, okay, let's, let's focus on the the mission that we need to do. Not the fact that you're a woman. Um, I telling these stories, it just reminds me of, uh, being in Afghanistan and once in a while I'd hear a woman's voice come over the radio. And we were like, we, and we, we were all rangers. We were all guys. So we we're like, who, who is this? She sounds really cute. Who is this girl? And <laughs> excuse me, we, we just been stuck out in, the, out in the badlands of Afghanistan, maybe a little bit too long. And uh, it turned out she was an AC-130 pilot. And uh, yeah, so a lot of jokes about the, the female angel of death watching over our shoulders. I cannot <laughs> tell you how many times I have heard that story from so many different guys. I bet. It, it always makes me laugh, um, which I think is really funny. But um, I, I had lots of people would come up to me on, on the different bases that we were at and be like, hey, are you Annihilator 2-4? Um, and, um, and would tell me, you know, we would talk about um, I had done a convoy escort for them or recon something and and yeah they always remember the female voices (laughs) oh man that's funny (laughs) so much pressure yeah yeah no i I can only imagine (laughs) so they were always really nice i I also just wanted to get um before we let you go your take you know especially you being someone who worked in the administration earlier this year um in the capacity that you did just what you think of what's going on in syria and, and the recent bombing of syria well, I feel like it's has a lot larger um, implications than than just a, um, a what Assad did with chemical weapons or us, you know, doing a retaliatory bombing. Um, people have to remember what is going on bigger picture in the region, um, which is why some people are like, well, why can't we just? pull out of Syria? Or why is that a bad idea? Um, you know, 
what sort of national security interests do we as Americans have in Syria at the present moment? And I think people just have to remember um, bigger picture, what is going on, uh, and how does that actually affect our national security directly? And, you know, Iranian and Russian influence are very significant inside Syria. And once U.S. presence removes itself from the equation, um, who is going to be leading all efforts within that region? Um, yes. Obviously, I, Iran and Russia. And so I think that's the, the big thing right now that people need to remember about why bigger picture are we involved in Syria? Um, Iran has been trying to, to gain geopolitical influence for quite some time. Um, and the U.S. exiting Iraq completely, Syria completely, obviously will give them a leg up in terms of doing that. Do you think it was also these recent strikes were also important in terms of maintaining international norms, um, specifically in regards to the prohibition on chemical weapons? I do. And I also think that it sends a very clear message to the world, uh, not just in the Middle East, that um, the U.S. isn't going to tolerate certain actions um, and that people regimes are going to be held accountable for decisions that um, they make and we're watching. And I think that um, nations like Syria um, are continuing to see um, how what they can get away with. Um, and then they get reminded of what's going to happen <laughs> um, when they do that. I, I saw a comment from, uh, from Jim Mattis actually today where the press was asking, or they, they were making some sort of accusation that it's hard for the UK, America, and France to find common ground and you know kind of get on the same sheet of music for the strikes. And he, he made this comment that I thought was really, really funny. He's like, no, we weren't looking for common ground. We had common ground. That's why we made the attacks. And he says, I hope Assad got the message this time. <laughs> Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He always has some great comebacks. <laughs> and and I, I also love when the press asks him about stuff completely unrelated to, you know, being secretary of defense and he'll completely blow it off and be like, that's not what I do. I, I just, I like how Frankie is. Yeah. 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 People, I, the press has definitely tried to pull him inside the sort of Washington drama. Yeah. And I think that secretary Mattis has done an excellent job of saying, you know, I have a job to do here. I'm not going to get involved in your, you know, whatever your news of the day is on who said what about who. I got to respect any of our government, uh, pardon me for the expression, but bureaucrats who do that and they come to work and they focus on their job and they're not interested in that soap opera nonsense. Yes. It's a rarity these days, I would say. <laughs> Very true. Um, so, yeah, once again, the book is Danger Close, My Epic Journey as a Combat Helicopter Pilot in Iraq and Afghanistan. You could follow Amber on Twitter and Instagram at Amber Smith USA. I'm glad to have you back on because, like I said, the first time we had you on, I was recording with this like shitty program that recorded Skype. <laughs> the audio sucked. So this will actually be good. It, was, it ended up being a good connection. And um, plus, I mean, I, I feel like every year that we do this show and it's been a couple years, like there's new people listening who haven't heard stories like the, these. And yeah. I think they're important to tell. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad I got to come on with you guys. I enjoyed the conversation and 
I'll definitely be pushing it out through my channels as well once um, once it's up. Thanks, Amber. All right. Have a good you day. You too. Bye. Great having Amber Smith back on the show. I wanted to mention that Sofrep.com is actually holding a raffle into the, until the end of uh, next month to benefit the Special Children's Center in New York City, which provides services to the families of 450 children with disabilities. Um, I was looking at what we're giving away for this raffle. It's a lot of great gear. And then also John Stryker Mayer's book, The Sog Chronicles, in there. Um, we're about halfway to $1,000 right now. We just put it up. So definitely um, get in on that. It's on softrep.com, and it's a raffle for a great cause. And we always try to do things for charity with softrep.com and with Hurricane Media. Um, also, there's only one club out there, of course, with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our premium crates have been an EDC med kit put together by Benghazi survivor and Army Ranger Chris Tonto Peranto, and a ballistic shield insert for your backpack made by Cry Precision. While Crate Club is really stepping up its game right now as 2018 progresses, by putting out custom products that you're not going to find anywhere else. Scott Whitner is hard at work with that, Marine veteran. Uh, We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you wish to be and gift options available as well. You can check that out all out at uh, crateclub.us. Once again, that's crateclub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've just launched Kuna. We have a team of trained canine handlers Picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So whether you're talking a pit bull or a chihuahua, this is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. And we haven't sent it out yet, so get in on it right now if you want to get the first package from Kuna. I know that they're hard at work with what they're going to put in there and uh, customizing it for your dog specifically. So that's C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And letting you all know as well, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today spec ops channel premiere show training cell follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country everything from shooting schools defensive driving jungle and winter warfare climbing and much more again you can watch this content right now by subscribing to the spec ops channel and that's at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And if you're a um, team member at softrep.com, you get all that included with the Spec Ops channel, which is great. So a lot of great stuff going on her- here at Hurricane Media and other stuff on the horizon as well that I can't announce yet. So Always plugs. things happening, things yeah. brewing. Yeah, we're also going to be in a new studio soon. I'm excited for that. Me too. We're going to see how that goes. Um, and... You know, I don't mention it all the time, but follow both of us on Twitter. Follow Jack at Jack Murphy RGR. Uh, you can follow me at my name, Ian Scotto. I want to get a new studio like uh, what's his face in uh, Parks and Recreation. I, I'm ever not seen like that a show? huge watcher, so no, I, I, I think I've seen a little bit. They, but the what? Guy, they start like some media startup. 
and uh, they just have like this huge office space and they like hire this NBA guy to just come in and shoot hoops. And, like it's all just like frivolous spending on nonsense, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, that'll be us. No, I, I want to do stuff like that. We'll hire some models to come by and like serve mixed drinks. And yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for checking us out. Uh, if you didn't check out the last episode, go do that with Curtis Alvarez. That was a great one. And uh, we'll be back with another episode on Wednesday. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.